Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning to everyone here at Balham. Good morning to Westside. Apparently, Battersea have taken the morning off. I'm not sure what they're up to. I can't imagine it's half as fun as this. Um, so this morning, I'm going to be speaking on prayer. You may think uh, in the middle of a weekend on prayer, this is a little bit back to front. Um, but I'm guessing for those of you who've enjoyed being part of this 48 hours of prayer this morning, you might be feeling like you want to carry this into the week ahead of you, um, see more prayer in your life. For those of you who haven't joined in this weekend, or for perhaps are happy to admit that prayer can sometimes be challenging, frustrating, maybe even a little bit weird, um, this is also very much for you. Even Jesus' disciples wondered, am I doing this right? They asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. And of course, they would have been familiar with all kinds of prayers. They were good temple goers, most of them. And they would have learned certain prayers. They would have been familiar with prayer. And it would have been something that was very much a part of their religious life. So it seems as though what they were really asking was, teach us how to pray like you. Teach us how to pray like you, Jesus how to relate to God like you do, how to see the world like you do. Because you seem to know what to pray, when to pray, and how to get your prayers answered. And I think most of us here would like to get in on that. And we recognize that the world out there would like a little bit of that too. So we're going to look at the answer that Jesus gave them. And it's not just another prayer, but it's a different way of praying. It's what we call the Lord's Prayer. As ever, the usual caveats apply this morning. This is one of the richest passages of scripture, and there are a thousand things that I could say. So instead, I'm sharing some resources up on the screens right now that might, I hope might be helpful for you. There should be something there for everyone, whether you want to dig deeper into prayer or whether this is something you're just getting started with or whether you're wondering what it is that I'm talking about. But just to set the scene this morning, maybe raise your expectations a little bit. Here's something that's been said about this prayer. There is, of course, much more to prayer than the Lord's Prayer, but it is a prayer that teaches us to pray. It is a foundation of the praying life, its introduction and its continuing basis. It is an enduring framework for all praying. You only move beyond it provided you stay within it. It is the necessary base in the great symphony of prayer. It is a powerful lens through which one constantly sees the world as God himself sees it. We find this prayer in two accounts of Jesus' life. One in Matthew 6, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, which is a collection of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God. And elsewhere in Luke 11. I like this one. The writer jumps straight in. One minute he's talking about the domesticity of Mary and Martha's house. He's breaking all kinds of social and religious conventions to teach a woman, of all things. And then he goes off to deliver a demon-possessed man. And in between those two events, as though the disciples are just waiting to get their hands on him, they grab a quiet moment with Jesus. And Luke writes in Luke 11, verses 1 to 4, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. 
When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. You see, Luke's version is short and put to the point. Matthew's is longer, and today we have them combined in a contemporary version without the these and thous that previous generations would have been so familiar with. But this is a prayer that has been prayed for 2,000 years. The oldest known version of it is found in a first century manual of Christian instruction. It was prescribed as a prayer to be prayed three times a day, as was then Jewish practice. For the first Christians, though, praying this prayer meant that they were, whether they were together or apart, whatever their background or status, they were all praying the same prayer at the same time. And these words were slowly and intentionally shaping their lives, embedding the work of the Holy Spirit into words that they would return to again and again, rooted in their everyday experiences. So although we can use this prayer as a guide when we don't know what to pray, and I encourage you to do that, it is so much more than that. It is a prayer that provides a framework for a prayerful life. This is the prayer, uh, the contemporary version that we're going to focus on today. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Structurally, you'll see it reads like a poem of two halves with a line added at the end. The first half begins by directing our attention to God and to his priorities before the second half turns to our physical, relational and spiritual needs. And it's connected by this phrase, on earth as in heaven, which reminds us that it has its resources, its sort of origins in heaven, but the action takes place on earth in the ordinary realities of our everyday lives. Interestingly, the key words are ours, ours and we and us, and not I and me and mine. Yours will be the kingdom. And in the context of this, of course, is Jesus. This prayer is born out of his relationship with God and his mission statement, the kingdom of God is here. And this is a prayer for citizens of that kingdom. So we're going to go through this now. We're going to begin with our Father. And I want to promise you that I'm not going to spend five minutes on every word. But these first two require particular attention. In fact, in the Catholic Church, this prayer is known by these two words. It's called the Paternoster, which in Latin means our Father, or more precisely, Father R. But for some of us, this is an immediate problem. Our earthly fathers or father figures have a habit of getting in the way. We cannot see past our experience or the damage that may have been done to us, which shapes our perceptions of ourselves and our relationships with others and with God. And for some of us, it may simply have too many patriarchal implications too. But we begin this prayer as we do each day in our journey of faith, coming to God just as we are and acknowledging him just as he is, 
not as we imagine him to be. And I say him, but this phrase is less about gender and more about recognizing God as a relational being, our creator, our source, our caretaker, and our provider. Because it's all too easy for us to imagine God in our own making, or one we've imagined this morning depending on how well or how badly our lives are going at the moment. But in these words, Jesus invites us to see God and experience him as he does. And from that perspective, from Jesus' perspective, we see a perfect father-son, parent-child relationship, one of love and affection, of trust and provision. So in these first words, we are reminded who we are praying to and why we pray. We pray to a God who is all-loving and all-powerful because he is the source of everything. And we discover a new sense of identity, belonging, and care for ourselves. We are given a new definition of father and a new kind of relationship with him and with each other because this prayer has horizontal and vertical implications too. This is not just our father, but this is our father. So often we pray alone, and obviously that's a good thing to do, but we're reminded that we are part of a family with all its inevitable dysfunction, reaching back all the way through time and across all cultures, and we are here to do this kingdom life together. So next we pray, our Father in heaven. Now, no matter how well I may have just created a picture of a loving, welcoming father to you and reminded you that you're part of a family, as soon as we say, in heaven, we may see God as far off, sat on a throne, preoccupied with far more important things. And it can be helpful to picture God like this, untouched by everything that we're going through, especially when our lives are a bit of a mess. But when we begin with an image of God elsewhere, it's easy to see why we distance ourselves, why we don't expect his intervention. And sometimes we feel like we really shouldn't be bothering him at all. Or perhaps we picture heaven as an irrelevant place of fluffy clouds with harp playing cherubs or Thor type angels. But if by heaven we mean the place where God rules and reigns, which is what the first believers would have understood it to mean, we come to see that heaven is all around us. It's like the atmosphere that surrounds us. Think of it like electricity. Everything in our universe is made of atoms, and in every atom is an electron. Applying force to those electrons is what makes them move around, and that's how we get electricity. Boom. We activate it and we harness it by aggravating it, by applying force to it, we can't see electricity, but we flick a switch, we turn on the kettle, even when we run the bath. We see, we heal, hear, we feel its effect. Now, don't go for a minute thinking that I'm saying that prayer is like flicking a switch. If you've been around any time, you'll know that that's not a good place to start. Prayer is less about us harnessing God's power and more about us getting into what he's up to already. Because the presence of God is here. It isn't an inanimate source of power, but a loving God whose kingdom we are learning to live in even as we go about our days figuring out what on earth that looks like. So when Jesus announced the kingdom of God is here, he meant the walls between heaven and earth have come down. Heaven is invading earth and it is becoming visible in him. 
If you want to know what heaven looks like, look at Jesus. Now, it is hard for us to grasp this in the midst of what we see all around us. But the challenge is not whether or not God is here. This is his world, full of beauty, full of wonder. Our challenge is to learn how to see that. So we pray our heavenly Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This may seem like a strange phrase. I'm not sure when was the last time you used the word hallowed. But just as our experience of the proximity to heaven may seem to jar with our experience of life on earth, our apprehensions about holiness may seem to jar with this sense of an accessible, approachable father. And yet, if you know anything of our faith, it is full of these paradoxes, which we slowly and surely come to embrace. Here is one of my favorite images. It is of the President of the United States. No, not that one. John F. Kennedy. Then, as now, often described as the most powerful job in the world. But there, crawling through a gap in the desk, is his son, just enjoying his proximity to his father. For us, this sense of all-powerful, untamed holiness, we hold intention with the confidence of a child about to approach the openness of her father. We no longer need to shrink from his holiness. We need to figure out how we can get his holiness into us. And so we pray, hallowed be your name. Let your name be holy, because God's character cannot be separated from his name. And what we're praying is, let your reputation be known on the earth. Let it be enhanced by those of us who seek your face. And let it be untarnished by the deeds of those who claim to. So that all may see and know that you are God, that you are here, and that you are holy. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary describes holiness like this. It is to be exalted or worthy of complete devotion as one perfect in goodness and righteousness. And this prayer reminds us that God is to be worshipped above all things, not to be brought low for our own purposes or agenda, our own political or religious factions, and not to be reduced to mere cliche or sentiment. So even as we pray, our Father in heaven, we're also praying, hallowed be your name, let your name be holy in me, in constant, humble, adoring worship towards the only one who is perfect in goodness and worthy of our complete devotion, who is not a God far off, but who is a God who is closer than we think. And so we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. In Germany, between the two world wars, was one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century, a man called Karl Barth, but he was no ivory tower academic. He resisted the influence of uh, the German Nazi party at that time, which was um, uh, causing the German church to do what it wanted to do. He resisted that. He created uh, doctrines so that um, those who wanted to be outside of that could pursue God. And his biggest influence was on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who later died in prison, having been accused of a plot to assassinate Hitler. And Barth, Karl Barth, understood prayer like this. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. We are well aware of the disorder of this world. You'd have to be living under a stone this week not to be. 
But the uprising does not always look the way we think. To pray is to humble ourselves against all our good ideas for making the world a better place. Why so-and-so is wrong and we are right. Why such-and-such shouldn't have happened and we could have done it so much better. Prayer reminds us that dealing with the disorder in our own lives is the most powerful vehicle for change in the world around us. To pray your kingdom come is to pray first and foremost, your kingdom come, your will be done in me. We cannot see God's kingdom come out there unless we're willing to make room for God's kingdom to come in here. But there's no mention of me in this prayer, remember? Instead, this prayer reorientates us around God's priorities and reminds us that a prayerful life is about the surrender of my sovereignty, relinquishing control of my little kingdom to God's sovereignty and the establishment of his kingdom. My desire is to conform to his likeness, not recreate him in mine. Because what Jesus began continues in us so that what is seen in us and overflows into the world around us is what brings true peace to a world in deep disorder. The kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. And the world is rightly impatient for God's kingdom to come, isn't it? Because if heaven is the place where God is, we know that heaven is a kingdom without loneliness, pain or death. Heaven is a kingdom without poverty, racism, and violence. Heaven is a kingdom where humanity is restored with dignity and diversity. It is a kingdom where bodies don't ache and hearts aren't broken. It is a kingdom where the mind is at peace with itself and our souls are awake and adoring. And so every prayer we pray is rooted in this. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then... We get on with it. We embody the kingdom. We do his will, loving our neighbor, caring for the earth, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, and going about our daily lives as citizens who are rooted in this kingdom. Now the prayer changes directly, direction slightly. Having reordered our priorities, we turn our attention to our needs. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. And I think at its most basic, this line is a collective cry for help. Help us, God, this day, every day. Those hearing this prayer for the first time would have been reminded of God's care for the Israelites in the desert, where he provided bread for them daily. Theirs was a wilderness life, dependent on God for their every provision. And ours is so often the same, even when we don't realize it. We may be hardworking, quite comfortable and self-sufficient in many ways. But in the words of Isaiah, we too often labor for what does not satisfy. We've developed an appetite for a fast food spirituality and a pick and mix faith when Jesus is our life-giving bread. I'm guessing this is a prayer that the Apostle Paul would have prayed daily whilst he lived under death threats and house arrest. And yet he writes to one of the early churches, my God will supply all your need according to his riches in glory. And elsewhere, Paul writes about himself, for his grace is sufficient for me and his power is made perfect in my weakness. In the kingdom of God, there is an abundance of all good things, 
We are to be filled and to go on being filled with the Spirit of God day after day after day. And there is more than enough for all of us. Whatever we lack, whatever we lost in the kingdom of God and by his grace, we have come home. We are loved. We are safe. We are held. And it's from that place that we pray, give us this day our daily bread. And this is so important, we know, because for some of us, we will literally be going hungry otherwise. Some of us need work. Some of us need somewhere to live. Some of us need shoes for our kids. Jesus expects us to look to heaven for our needs, knowing that we are approaching a loving, heavenly Father. But remember, in Matthew's gospel, we find this prayer in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, where it carries much broader social and economic implications, reminding us what it looks like not just to pray, but to practice what we preach in the way we live, in the way we work, in the way we spend our money, and in the way we relate to each other, so that no one else will go without their daily bread because of me. And so we pray, forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Whether there are things that we have done or failed to do, most of our sin, that behavior that separates us from God and from each other, often originates from trying to meet a valid need with an unhealthy or harmful solution. But too often the damage is already done. We need God's forgiveness because our oldest and deepest debt is to him and because we are so terrible at forgiving ourselves. And how does God respond? He responds to us with grace, leading us to a place of confrontation with our own behavior, freedom to confess our failure, and offering us a shocking alternative to the self-help, you-do-you, virtual signaling kind of options that most of us seem to get away with today. The alternative, the shocking alternative, is that we can take responsibility for our actions. We can make reconciliation where necessary. We can change our ways. And we can receive a renewed rightness from him, free from guilt and fear and shame. This is the work of the cross, of the first man who prayed this prayer. And it has power to change the way that we live. So we pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We need God's forgiveness because it's so hard to forgive those around us. Resentment, bitterness, and anger just taste so much sweeter sometimes. But sooner or later, we find ourselves unable to let go of those things. Lewis Smedes wrote a book called Forgive and Forget, Healing the Hurts We Don't Deserve. And he said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. We may have been treated in a way that we did not ask for or deserve, but unforgiveness only binds us up in the hurt that's been done to us. It amplifies the damage and it holds us captive to it while the other person gets on with their life regardless. The power to forgive comes from the cross, from the forgiveness that we've received and the knowledge that we can set ourselves free. It is not easy, but it is possible. 
And it sits in this prayer to remind us that seeing God's kingdom visible on earth as in heaven is often a brave act of confrontation, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And so we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, I've read a bit about this line. A lot of people struggle with it, apparently even the Pope. But I think it could simply be translated like this. Keep us away from the bad stuff, Lord. Because it's all around us, isn't it? And worst of all, it's inside of us. Many of us live with a disordered mind in a disordered world, which makes living in love and grace and peace something that feels like it is forever out of reach. It may once have seemed old-fashioned to believe in good and evil. It may even have seemed to previous generations that we've grown out of all that. We're capable of making the world a better place all by ourselves. So how's that working out? How do we even recognize good and evil these days? How do we discern right from wrong, what's healthy or harmful, when we're surrounded by polarized debate, fake news, and the apparent freedom to do whatever we like? It may sound naive, but I say, fix your eyes on Jesus. Turn your attention towards him every chance you get. Get to know him. Pray what he prayed. Do what he did. And I promise you, you will find him a constant, credible, compassionate presence in your life that will keep you out of trouble and in perhaps an unsurprising way, make the world a better place. So lastly, we pray the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours. This was not part of Jesus' original prayer and probably comes from a phrase in the Old Testament book of Chronicles where King David prays, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. Perhaps the early believers who added this wanted a way to celebrate and to express their confidence in a God that can overcome all things, even death whilst they continued to live in an empire which knew a thing or two about kingdoms and power and glory. In ending the prayer this way, maybe they prayed this, that ultimately they might be reminded that all power and glory belong to God. Whoever holds them on earth, it is temporary and limited. We submit to them only because we submit to God. So let his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And let us be part of it today. I hope these words have given you some encouragement for living a more prayerful life. I don't know how familiar you are with the Lord's Prayer, whether it's something that you use, something you've tossed aside, or something that just felt a little bit alien. But I hope that you feel more able to make this prayer your own, or even just more confident to pray your own prayers in light of all it teaches. But why pray in the first place? C.S. Lewis, the great thinker, philosopher, and writer, once wrote, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. I don't know about you right now, but I pray because I feel pretty helpless. I pray these words, the Lord's Prayer, because I know that I am helpless. I pray these words as I fall asleep at night, 
I pray them on the way to pick up my daughter from school. I pray them when I'm too lazy to think of anything else. And I pray them when they're the only intelligent thing left to say. I pray them in order to inhabit them, and I pray that they might inhabit me, that these words would change the way that I see the world and that I would see God's kingdom come. You don't have to pray them at all, but let them inform how you pray. Let them teach you as they taught the disciples how to pray like Jesus. Because to live a prayerful life means pray short prayers and long ones, written ones or spontaneous ones, old ones and new ones. It means to come on your knees, go for a walk or sit at your desk. It means to hold the hands of a dying parent or rock your crying baby to sleep. It means to move mountains and walk through the valleys. But in all of this, there are no magic words. There are no special qualifications and there are no hidden secrets to a life of prayer. Except one. Show up. Do the things that help you to pray. Don't do the things that keep you from praying. And always, always know that you can start again today. Let the words of the Lord's Prayer welcome you in to a new way of seeing, to a new way of believing, to a new way of approaching your God and let them keep you company on your journey. Let's stand, have the band back. It's good to know that God is in the room, isn't it? That sounds like a really cheesy preacher thing to say, actually. I just mean from my perspective, standing up here looking at you, it's really good for me to know that God is in the room. Um, we're going to worship now, and I particularly chose a song this morning which reflects the words that we've been talking about this morning. And um, as much as I want to invite you to come up and use this space to pray, come kneel, stand, uh, sit before the cross, come make these spaces your own, um, I want to invite you as we worship to pray. And um, I want to encourage you to, to um, whether the flames feel like they're just about to go out on your faith or whether you feel like you've really stoked the fire this weekend, I want to encourage you to come and get close to Jesus because he will set you alight again. And so we're going to sing the song and we're going to pray together. And if you want someone to pray alongside you for God's kingdom to come about something specific in this world that's grieving you right now, I think of a situation in Ukraine. I think of those women in Iran right now. I think of those who are protesting in London yesterday, today, and for the rest of this month. There's a lot of things going on in our world right now that could do with God's kingdom coming and his will be dunning. And we ask that, Lord, that that would be true. But there might be things where you need God's daily bread right now. So, so you're welcome to come up here. We would love to pray with you. But most of all, I just ask, use this time. This is your time right now to connect with God, to invite his kingdom to come in you on your little patch of earth as it is in heaven. So come, Lord, we pray. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.